For March 27th, 2023, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 769. Just a plain Giovanni, salt of the Medici. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are setting sail uh, for a bunch of luxurious experiences together. We go we go on international trips, you know, together to uh to uh elite restaurants, to um, you know, resorts, uh on luxury cruises. We 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 travel the world in search of the best overthinking it uh overthinkable culture that we can bring back and talk about on the show. I'm uh I am your captain, Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friends Peter Fenzel. Hello Pete. Hello, Matt. And Jordan Stokes. Jordan, it's great to have you. It's great to be here, although you'll notice that Pete didn't bring his planned date for this evening. (laughs) (laughs) In in, in that I'm not Mark. Oh, I was going to say, if you guys could just stand next to me for a second so I could just get a picture, that would I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll buy you a Rolex. I'll buy you all Rolexes. So I um uh, I suggest that we should we should watch the uh, the films uh, the menu and triangle of sadness for this this podcast and we uh, you know uh, and we we sort of did <laughs> we uh, kind of did that but uh, it struck me that there has been a you know a kind of mini renaissance in um, these kind of prestige ether rich uh, dramedy satirical films uh, triangle of sadness centers on a bunch of uh, a bunch of wealthy people on a luxury yacht um the menu starring ray fines uh, as a you know a, a chef who would be have like a, a michelin rated restaurant or a, a um like a world's 50 best right type of type of restaurant t- tasting experience tasting menu kind of theatrical experience uh sort of sort of kitchen i i had thought uh that because it's marketed as a thriller i had thought that uh the um this the big reveal was going to be cannibalism it's not it's a little more uh it's a little deeper than that and uh and also the white lotus the hbo show that that focused for two seasons on a chain of of resorts of kind of four season like resorts four seasons like resorts i should say uh, the first one in Hawaii and the second one in Sicily. Um, the first season kind of focusing on money, large, uh, you know, disparities in money, inequality, wealth, and kind of what wealth does to people and what wealth does to relationships and what how how it sort of warps the, the social fabric. And then uh, the second season about uh, sex and about uh, rich people on a, uh, on a, you know, picturesque holiday in a luxury resort behaving badly vis-a-vis uh, their, their sexual mores. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that, that was kind of the thing, um, the thing that I wanted to bring. And, and Pete, uh, you uh, managed to see the film, the, the triangle of sadness, and I just ha- have to say. Oh, uh, by the way, spoil- spoilers for uh, triangle of sadness and and the menu. I suppose, like, uh, if you want to see what have, if you want to know what happens in those films, go watch them and then listen listen to this podcast. But Pete, uh, I I have a question for you. Uh, is this a Balenciaga podcast or is it H and M? I'd like to H and M. I was hoping it would be an H and M podcast, but because I am. Very sore throat right now, so I won't be able to speak with my full voice. I'll have to make it a grumpy podcast. You'll have to imagine that I'm standing aloof with my shoulders slightly sideways and the triangle of sadness between my eyebrows relaxed right as I stare jauntily into the camera. Um, yeah, it's uh, so I watch. I, I I did try to get through both the the triangle of sadness is a long movie. It's it's about two and a half hours and it's pretty you know rich and in depth. So it takes a little bit to watch, and it's it's definitely a serious commitment to uh, both making and seeing that movie. Um, the menu I got probably through the first half hour seemed much lighter, much more um, comfortable as a well-made play sort of thing. The performance style difference between the two movies was immense. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so for those who are unfamiliar, the menu is like is like a Hollywood movie. Right. It's it's a very I mean, it's supposed to be a thriller. Right. I didn't get to the part that was thrilling yet, but it was going to get there eventually. And then Triangle of Sadness 
is like a three act meditation that has, you know, intertitles telling you which act of the meditation you're in and which each of the meditations are somewhat loosely connected to the other ones that have taken place. And it's European, very, very, very European. Um, I'm not sure exactly where it was made because it's sort of all over European. Uh, Pete, I can, I can help you there. It was made on a boat. There you go. Perfect. It's European except for Woody Harrelson, which is great, which all movies that are made in Europe should be right. I think that they're going to start being tax breaks for that. Um, yeah, I really I, I I feel like I got a lot out of watching Triangle of Sadness, but I've never really identified with these kind of entertainments that much. And I'll tell you why. Um, excuse me. The um, you know, Tommy Boy, that's a movie I identify with a lot. You know, Tommy Boy. Sure. Okay, so so uh, you know how Tommy Boy is kind of an Eat the Rich movie, sort of. <laughs> okay, maybe. Right. Well, yeah. Well, because it's got Dan Aykroyd in it, right? Who's the car parts king of Chicago? And do you remember what Dan Aykroyd, the car parts king of Chicago, says about his car parts? Uh, I don't, Pete. You're gonna have to remind me. He says, Jordan, do you know? I do not recall. Does he say "fat man in a little jacket"? That's my no, 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 no. <laughs> fat man in a little coat is from that movie, and it's great. Um, but he says. I make car parts for the American working man because that's who I am and that's what I care about. Um, and he is BSing you. He's totally BSing you, right? Yeah. It's great it's like remembering nothing else. Like, that's a lie. If, yeah. you run a, if you run a car parts company, you are, like, definitionally not the American working man. Well, I mean, that's that's the conundrum, right? Because coming out of the mid-20th century – at least all of the work that I'd ever done in and around um, in and around affluence, really, at least in the eastern United States, there was not this sense that affluent people identified as this rarefied other form of person. It's not something I was familiar with growing up. It wasn't something I was familiar with in sort of my earlier professional work. Most very rich people think of themselves as middle class people in the United States, at least statistically, at least maybe 20 years ago when I stopped studying this sort of thing, or I guess maybe like 15 or, or 10 years ago when I stopped working in and around that kind of business. Um, and so this idea of rich people who are apart from even pretending to be the middle class is something that feels weird to me. Um, now, I'm not saying it's not real. I think that it's part of the um, re- realignment of uh, various sorts of aesthetics and uh, choreography, especially the diversification of the workforce, because the uh, it's the American working man, right? So it's a patriarchal system in which the top dudes act like the middle dudes so that the middle dudes and the lower dudes will follow the top dudes, right? Um, that's the system that I was familiar with when I was raised. And it's not a great system in a lot of ways, but I don't have this like, gut reaction when I see like a super wealthy person living a like super wealthy life in the contemporary sense. Like I've never, I've never met anyone like that in real life. I don't know what they're so, like. And I, yeah. Like, do you feel like, because it's definitely something that has been in movies forever. Right. Yeah. Uh, so like when you, when you see a movie like this, where you have these fancy people at their fancy restaurants and their fancy yachts, do you think like, Oh, this is, this is like a stock cliche, uh, you know, sort of like, sort of like one of the, the, the nightclub singer in Casablanca or something like that, where you recognize them as a stock character, but you're like, maybe that represented someone that was real, like in the 1950s, but it's sort of weird to make them in a movie here in the 21st century. Cause real rich people are not like that. Is that sort of your experience of it? I, I, I think that might be like, it's, it's, it, you can bifurcate it. Right. So like in triangle of sadness, there's a lot of rich old people and the rich old people all read to me as Looney Tunes characters because they all feel like rich old people from the 20s and 30s. Huh. You know, like uh, – so, <laughs> so when they start – Sam is what you're saying, right? <laughs> like Mr. Sam. Mr. Uh, Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly or something Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, exactly. Well, like a Betty, you know, a Betty Boop cartoon or like a cartoon where like W.C. Fields shows up in a cameo in the background, right? Um, where, where Bugs Bunny is trying to serve at a fancy restaurant. Um yeah, but the, the I mean, it, it, with with a couple of differences, with a couple of like you know tweaks. That is to say, the uh, the Russian um, manure 
uh, you know, like agricultural conglomerate owner, uh, right, is uh, has to take selfies of his like younger wife, doesn't he? <laughs> well, <laughs> like, that's the other half of it, right? Is the young people. The young people are totally different, right? These are people who have, you know, never been forced to wear a suit, right? Like that they've never experienced that, that kind of old formality. And it's a very different choreography of fashion and of social experience. And I could learn more about it if I watched more shows like this, but I don't, um, probably just by chance, mostly because I'm watching Blaze and the Monster Machines. If they were all monster trucks that were trying to jump over chasms and or solve rudimentary math problems, I'd understand them a lot better. I said, I said to, to, to Christina when we finished watching this movie, Pete is, Pete is going to uh, not feel connected to this movie. Pete you you feels, thought that? You anticipated I, that? I did anticipate that. I said, okay. Pete feels connected to Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and she said, what's that? And I had a fantastic opportunity <laughs> to uh, explain what Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance is. I explained it's Nicolas Cage, but sometimes he's a flaming skeleton and he rides around on a big chopper, uh, you know, and he is the he is the Ghost Rider who is also the spirit of of vengeance. And and she said, wait, did you say Ghost Writer? And I said, no, 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 that's a movie. That's a movie with uh, that's a movie with, I think, like Pierce Brosnan and Ewan McGregor. Uh, in it, which is a murder mystery. No, it's not. It's not that. It's Ghost Rider. Um, not not a writer of ghosts. No, but a writer who is uh, who is a ghost. And I, I explained that uh, because you you uh, have a lot of experience, you know, just in your own life with flaming skeletons. You feel connected to uh, to Ghost Rider. Um, Ghost Rider Spirit of, of, of Vengeance. But it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I understand, Pete, that, that you don't, you don't relate to these highfalutin entertainments because you are a common man and you want common entertainments for the common man. Well, I'm, 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 I, I would say that I am significantly more fortunate than the average person in a lot of ways, not, not the least of which being you beautiful people on this podcast with me. Um, so I wouldn't say that I am like the common man. I, that would be a little bit demeaning of me, but, you know, that's my vocabulary of, uh, you know, that's like New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s. I mean, go look at Gordon Gecko. He doesn't look like this. You know, it's <laughs> nobody in the Wolf of Wall Street looks like this. <laughs> These yeah. people. Right. Like you wouldn't be able to evaluate like the perkiness of the nipples and yet, of the various people. Uh, in Wall Street. It's funny. But then, then I mean, the fun- the funny thing is that. The level of inequality, like the amount more money that Gordon Gecko had than, you know, uh, like the the median income in America at the time. Right. is so much less. Yeah. You know, it's, than not, the like, amount, it's not like it's not without its material. Right. Causes. Like, yeah. Then the amount yeah. then the amount of money more, the, the multiple, yeah. the like the gap of inequality that these, you know, sort of slovenly uh, uh, sort of consumerist. Uh, billionaires have um, that that they are they are in their way so much more rich and yet yeah don't I mean the the particular signifiers of it are not not quite as um, you know uh, uh, not quite as pronounced or, or are maybe from a different library of norms than than the one that would be uh, the one that you'd be used to if you're um, if your uh, what sense of of what high culture and and wealth uh, is like ends at ends at Michael Douglas. I mean, I would also I also care. one one quick side note: Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, another podcast where I lost my voice. So that's good luck. Oh, instant classic. Um, I wonder if this might be kind of a question of people containing multitudes, because Pete, you say that you like in the milieu that you formed your sense of what really rich people are like, there was a lot of them posturing as if they were just playing Joe's salt of the earth, that kind of thing. Um, And I believe you that that's a a, a thing that you see in the world, but the place where I first started to like rub elbows with the really, really rich, I was working in arts management, like doing Mm -hmm. fundraising for classical music organizations, Um, which means that I was running into people who were being, you know, all capitalized here, patrons of the arts, right? Uh, Which means that, like, in, in that moment, they did not want to tell themselves or anyone else around them, hey, I'm just a plain Joe salt of the earth. They wanted to be, you know, 
just a plain Giovanni salt of the Medici, you know, this kind of the, the thing that they were aiming for. And I wonder, like, was it that I was talking to a different set of rich people? Like maybe, right. Or is it that uh, a really rich person can roll out of bed on a particular day, think about the particular audience that they're going to be engaging with. And, you know, w- without ever consciously deciding to do something fake, they just sort of inhabit this persona or that persona. Um, and I wonder if, like, if to to really understand what people are like when they're in the in their kind of like um, vomit yacht mode, you <laughs> have to actually ride the vomit yacht with them and see what they're like in that space. You know, what are they like when there's only other millionaires in the room? You have to surf the vomit yacht. You know, uh, surf the tidal wave of tidal wave of vomit. Yeah, yeah, when they're, I love that. I love. Sorry, go ahead. When they're when they're in a space, you mean that is kind of delimited, and that is like, um, uh, uh, you know, where they feel safe. You know, where where uh, their where their identity is respected. Yeah, I like, like this I mean, interpretation. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Like you might be you might be in danger from certain things, but when you're on a yacht, you're not in much danger of someone calling you out for being too rich, right? Sure. I mean, though, the, it, it's interesting. I mean, the 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 sort of one one interesting thing the film does is by by like by the upstairs downstairs dynamic of it, like by showing that those those spaces are actually like really maintained by a cast of thousands, you know, or a crew of thousands, I suppose it would be more, more accurate to say. But then I think the thing that the film does that's, that's really, really interesting is that it's not just, uh, upstairs, downstairs. It's upstairs, downstairs, really downstairs, right? Where the, you know, largely non-white, uh, non-English speaking, um, like cleaning and, and maintenance crew, uh, workers live and eat and, and work so that when, you know, in the, the first scene of act two, right. Or the, an early scene of act two, when the, I, I don't know what the jobs on a ship are called the head, like customer service crew member, the like crew, what is, what is that cruise director or something like that? They all end in Swain, say <laughs> cruise Swain, Swain, the, the blonde Swain um, is, uh, you know, is psyching up the the group of people who is who is going to provide the kind of the frontline customer service the visible customer service you know it's um it's uh they they end chanting together money 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 in this you know sort of orgiastic like crescendo and uh the they are you know banging on the tables and stomping their hands and you cut to like a deck below you know, where the, the, all the, the toilet cleaners and all the pipe fitters, steam fitter, or I don't know, what, what do you have on ships, right? Like, um, what, they're called the, the burn swains. The bur- right? They the do burn all the burning swain, things. Cause they shovel, they shovel the coal. Um, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they're just like looking up and, you know, to them, right? Like their, their relationship, to the you know largely white European crew of the boat is uh, is a kind of funhouse mirror of the relationship of the crew to the uh, to the to the rich passengers, and so like showing that how how this world you know is suspended on the back of an elephant, but that elephant is on a turtle, and there are turtles all the way down. Is I you know I don't know something that one uh, one achievement I think of. of of this movie i do love i love how woody harrelson plays in all this yeah uh it's so great jordan yeah you would enjoy this movie i think if not for nothing other than the woody harrelson part because <laughs> woody harrelson plays the captain of the yacht who is a hardcore marxist leninist i think or he's a marxist he insists he's not a communist but is a marxist and all he does is stay in his room and drink and he won't come out and do any work and he won't help anybody with any problems. Right. And like, but when he, but when he sits at dinner, right, he demands that the crew bring him a cheeseburger on the silver platter because he doesn't go in for fine dining. Right. So he's there in his like epaulets leaning over drunk, like in charge of everything in this high status position where the rich people have to come up and shake his hand. And, and he's like eating a burger and fries. He's the Dan Aykroyd. Like I'm a, I'm an, I'm a regular guy. Right. Um, and there's a point where he gets into an, a sort of quote battle with the uh, 
with the Eastern European post-Soviet fertilizer salesman, who's one of the best characters in the movie. Um, and, and they're exchanging like Ray Reagan and Marxist quotes. And they're doing this like literally while the ship is sinking and like getting That's amazing. Yeah. There's like a giant storm and this, and the ship is going to hell and all the people in the ship are vomiting or like pooping themselves or rolling around on the ground or being injured. And like the captain who's supposed to be in charge is like drunkenly yelling over the ship loudspeaker, a whole bunch of Marxist tirade about how the capitalists should be killed. And then the, the capitalists are also yelling a tirade about how the Marxist should be should be uh, irrelevant and whatnot. And it all ends with pirates, like actual pirates coming and taking the boat and wow. setting it on fire. So it's like, oh, you guys think this is between you. Right. You think this is a battle between, you know, the white people who think that this should be for the laborers and the who are also like in charge of everything. And the white people who think this should be for them who are also in charge of everything. Actually, it's about us, everybody else who has had to deal with your bullshit this entire time. Um, and then they end up on the island and a whole bunch of different things happen. Well, not a whole bunch. <laughs> several things that are very intense happen on the island. Can I ask, it probably isn't explained. Was this guy a Marxist who somehow became a yacht captain? Or was he a yacht captain who somehow became a, a Marxist? It's, it's not like, explained. He just shows up. <laughs> he shows up fully formed. He sprung like that from the head of yeah. Zeus, the, mo- the Marxist. They are, knocking, they are knocking on his door and the Internationale is playing. At full blast. <laughs> I mean, either way, I think that your your move there is to lock yourself in your room and drink. But I feel like yeah. I bet you that Woody Harrelson knows, right? Whether it was in the script or not, Woody Harrelson made that decision about which trajectory there, this guy went there's on. There's one way to read the book, uh, read the read the movie that Woody Harrelson is scuttling the ship on purpose, but I think that gives him too much credit. First of all, because yeah. he doesn't survive. And then <laughs> yeah, a lot of the workers don't survive. Only like ten people survive. Um at least as far as we can tell. Um, and then also just because it's more in, cause then when you actually think about the fact that they're arguing with each other rather than helping when the ship is, is sinking, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely yeah. that, that moment sticks with me. Yeah. But like, I mean, there's, there's a version of the story you could tell where he's like, I've lured you onto this yacht. You know, my, my whole life becoming a yacht captain has been about getting the biggest capitalist assholes possible onto the yacht and then sinking it. But that doesn't sound like what's in the text. I mean, this is interesting. The stuff that you're talking about here. Like, that's that's actually it? the plot of the menu, BT Dubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually the literal yeah. plot of the menu. I'll, 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 the, yeah. I'll spoil it later, but uh, yeah. sorry, what were you about to say, Jordan? Yeah. Well, just that, like, isn't isn't like one of the big stories of the latter half of the 20th century, the emergence of this kind of um, – like, I mean, to call it the middle class is kind of uh, accurate, but but not quite. The professional managerial class, right, that term, where these are people who are, um, in terms of their access to capital, they are workers, right? Because, like, they don't own factories. They don't own uh, heavy machinery, right? They're not able to make capital investments and recoup on that. However, they are kind of culturally aligned with the capitalists in that they are educated at the same schools and they wear the same outfits and they go to the same parties and uh, they are not typically unionized, right? Like they, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're dentists, they're university professors and things like that. Although the professors may be unionized, like it's, they're not, they're not blue collar. Um, and there is this kind of way in which, as an intermediary between the capitalists and the uh, the proletariat, you know, this is a, a Marxist theory, but like the professional managerial class is what allows the uh, the gears of capitalism to not grind to a halt, because like they are on the one hand. Uh, friendly enough to the capitalists culturally that they will maintain the system, but they are uh, similar enough to the workers that they're able to be exploited by the capitalists in turn. Do you feel like that kind of plays out in this movie? Um, it does. Well, I, I think it it's does. It's more like it doesn't. Yeah, well, it doesn't kind of, in a slightly allegorical way. Right. Yeah. Like I think that that when, so when the shipwreck happens after the pirates, 
uh, board the ship. And I think they end up blowing up part of the ship. Like it's not, wasn't clear. I don't know how you can loot a ship after blowing it up, but like the idea, I, I think that something like they, they blow up the ship maybe by accident, whatever. And the, and, and, you know, a, abandoned ship and everyone you know 10 people wash up after that when 10 people wash up uh they don't all wash up at the same time they you know they're kind of stragglers uh arriving and the last um the last person to arrive on the kind of the beach where the survivors are you know uh, find themselves washed up is uh abigail who is the the like what do they call her the toilet maid or the toilet the toilet manager yeah the toilet manager <laughs> um the uh you know uh that uh and and she shows up she's the only one who has actually gotten to a lifeboat she's the only one who has done anything useful at all she got to a lifeboat uh it has survival supplies in it and so the the blonde swain the you know the woman who is the head of the uh who is the head of the the frontline you know customer service crew right like sticks her head in the thing um, sees that Abigail is there, sees that supplies are there, and her is like, ah, Abigail, very good. Load all of these supplies out of the, out of the lifeboat. We need all of these outside right now, right now, you know, and starts, starts doing that. And that, and that like, um, th- the, the identification, right, is with the, the wealthy passengers over the, um, you know, over the working class, you know, non-white toilet technician. And that's, uh, uh it's not exactly what you're saying, but it is kind of allegorically, uh, allegorically what you're saying, which is that you kind of like keep a, you know, I don't know. You can you can kind of like um, develop a, a cadre of of false. Uh, uh, you know, you can kind of develop a, a, a culturally um, uh, affinate affinity. What's the, the uh, adjective? Affinity. Affin- yeah, but what's the adjective? Uh, the oh, uh, you can affinitive. You, you can no. Uh, that's a that's a the affinitive is a yeah. uh, is a verb with uh, you know. Um, a really good accent, but the uh, no, like a you can develop a, a a group with a cultural affinity that that you know kind of maintains that that does the professional management on on behalf of the on behalf of the capital, and you keep them you keep them happy with things like five twenty nine plans, you know. Uh, and when you point out that their five twenty nine plans are not a good deal for society, they they fight you tooth and nail. They they you know they donate small amounts of money to their their elected representatives and stuff. And that, I mean, I feel like it, it allocate, uh, it, it kind of allegorically um, mirrors the relationship you're, you're talking to, even though there are no, um, you know, there are no like, uh, I don't know, vice pre- regional vice presidents of marketing, right. In this, there are no like, uh, I, I don't know, managers of, uh, I don't know. What's a fun thing to be a manager of. There are no, you know, managers of the, the, uh, all the Starbucks in the Northeast, um, yeah, or yeah. something like that. Though there are there are influencers who get the trip for free, who are who are sort of interesting. They're there, you know, two two younger models um, who are there mostly snapping pictures. Who yeah, are they're who are mostly the protagonists, people. and what happens to them is kind of. It's funny that we've talked about this movie this much and haven't really touched on the protagonists of the movie. Uh, well, yeah, is, it's because yeah. I mean the, it's a three act movie. I I kind of like just just. Um, you know, in, in my guts, as it were, I sort of view it as, uh, a BCD and ACD before Captain's Dinner and after, after Captain's Dinner, uh, as the movie before the, the vomit scene and after the, the balletic, uh, you know, an extended, uh, uh, you know, scene of seasickness and food poisoning, vomit and diarrhea. Um, but, uh, there is a whole first act of this movie, uh, which is about a bad relationship. <laughs> Yes. Which is about two models dating each other and why they don't have the, they don't have the, the, you know, relational or intellectual tools to like figure out who pays for dinner. And yeah, that, exactly. uh, you know, the, and, and we don't, I mean, th- talking about it, it's, it's 45 minutes of the movie. And yet we don't, you know, I, I feel like the real, the real movie is on the boat and on the beach. And, and yet there's like 40, 45 or 50 minutes of this film that's devoted to the kind of the, the like, you know, uh, just 
just mind-numbingly tiresome squabbles of uh, these two vapid individuals. Oh, I thought that was the best part of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, I did try to watch these movies before things happened, like my kids got sick this week and whatnot, and that was the only thing that I saw. So for me, that that is what Triangle of Sadness is about, is these two hot people like not picking up the check at dinner and getting increasingly snippy about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought it was very cleverly written. I thought it was really well done for what it was. Um, Right, because just to, to frame it a little bit, it's that uh, is that is that the woman says thank you or before he offers right or says like you're you're something about being lovely. Well, he right? does. I mean, it's a it's a there's kind of a ballet of passive aggression because you yeah. you learn you don't see all of this, but you learn that when we join the scene, uh, what has happened was that the check was dropped like 15 minutes ago, and she's just been on her phone this whole time. Uh, you know, and she claims later not to have seen it, but then the guy does something passive aggressively. Like, I think he like flicks the side of the, like the metal salver that has the, the receipt, uh, the, the bill for dinner in it. He kind of like flicks it to make a ting, ting, ting noise to draw her attention to it. And she, she looks up from the phone and is like, Oh, thanks, honey. And like looks, looks right back down, uh, at her phone, at which point he like, uh, starts a fight with her about it. Um, tries, you know, tries to to bring it up and and talk about it. I thought that the setup there, as it cashes out at the end, is actually really biting and intense, right? Because at the beginning, the guy first. There's that wonderful scene at the very beginning at the at like the the model reality show or whatever it is, like where the guy's interviewing the models and he talks about the different ways to do the different brands and you and you see the chit chat among the models and then you see like the model auditions and. Uh, and so this guy is hanging out with all the shirtless models, just looking the way he's told to look, feeling the way he's told to feel. And then he goes on to be with his girlfriend where he can't talk to her um, about how he feels about her not paying attention and also like not picking up the check. And he goes on this whole thing about gender roles, right? How he wants the freedom to not have to default to the male gender role in their relationship. And how he wants to be truly equal with her and like a best friend, right? Um, and and not to like have this social construction that hangs over them. Um, and then by the end of the movie, of course, he is a prostitute. He has like voluntarily uh, sort of been turned out by by the former toilet manager, who has once once the toilet manager establishes that she's the only person who can help anybody survive. She starts out by keeping 50% of everything in the whole society for herself and then only feeding people who admit that she's in charge, right? And then gradually sort of upping the ante uh, in various ways until he has sort of like rationalized to his girlfriend that he's going to stay in her lifeboat and is sort of begging her to like make him her, her boyfriend rather than just have him be her prostitute. Although he doesn't quite understand which rhymes, that that's what he is. Rhymes with the earlier conversation that he had had with Yaya, the model, about like, I want to be your boyfriend. He says, like, I'll bet you, you know, I'm going to make you fall in love with me, even though you say she was very upfront about this is just something for clout, right? This is for like likes and followers. People like um, this is, uh, you know, she. Uh, this is a, a kind of exactly the same conversation. And actually, one of my funniest, like I was laughing and laughing watching the movie, watching uh, Abigail, who is, you know, who has become like the the captain of the island. Right. Uh, she calls herself the ca- the captain. Um uh, watching her have a manipulative conversation, right, with with her, uh, you know, boy, with her camp follower, yeah. right, like who uh, that could be any. You've you've seen that scene a million times before in a million movies, and you'd you'd be banging on your thing like, you know, he does, he's just using you, he's just manipulating you, and she's doing, you know, she she does it and kind of turns the turns the uh turns the the dynamic around so like he gets his wish in a way where he does where he doesn't have to play the you know traditionally masculine uh kind of caretaking gender role right like right, right, he, right he gets to have the uh he gets to have the the sort of subordinate or kind of taken care of or looked after role in the uh in the um uh, in the the relationship in his experience in his life 
right? which turns out to not be about freedom at all or really equality. <laughs> but but about is, is, yeah, there is something interesting to sort of think about the the class analysis, if you want to call it that. Models are sort of the ultimate in service industry. Like if you, if you have the sort of the thing with the shipwreck is it strips society down to this position of scarcity where suddenly someone who can like actually say start a fire or catch a fish is uh, incredibly powerful now. Right. And all the people who had money, like the money is worthless paper. If you are a, a model, right, like the thing that you can do is be hot. Like you'd better hope that there's a rich person around to pay you to be hot. Like if that's if that's Balenciaga or H and M, like great. If that is the you know the erstwhile toilet manager, uh, then okay. But you cannot survive on your own, right? And like being a professional model, someone who like professionally is good looking, presumably one doesn't have a whole bunch of other skills than that. That's probably not true. Probably many models. No, live it's it's explicitly lives. stated. It's explicitly stated in the movie that this is the case, even yeah. if it's not like, true in reality. Yeah. For, for, for the for the for the the way that it works in in films, it's kind of taken for granted that these people have absolutely nothing else going on. So, like, of course, he's going to to find a place in the new hierarchy, and it's kind of the same place, right? As sort of the person who is there to be decorative for the enjoyment of the the wealthy. But Jordan, I, I have one question for you. One question to follow up on that: Why male models? Um. I don't think that I say male models. I think any any model is sort of the same boat, okay. but mainly because Zoolander is really funny. So yeah. So wait. So I have another question. Why male models? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because Zoolander is really funny. There we that's go. What I said. Excellent. Excellent. Sorry. Uh, hopefully, hope man, that would have landed better if my voice were in better shape. I Pete, think. Why? Why? Uh, ask me again. But one for for one last time. Matt, why male models? Because they're uh, they're very light, and it's cheaper than sending them on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I male models. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so for the ambiguous ending of the movie, do you think, Matt? Which do you think the rock falls? Oh no! Yeah, I mean, I could smell what the rock was cooking, <laughs> but that, like, uh, yes, I, I mean, I think it does. I think she seals her fate. I think that she stops for a second and you know has a has a moment where her humanity is you know kind of stirred uh, by Yaya saying Abigail, though she doesn't turn around and look at her. But I think then then Yaya seals her fate when she says, "You could be my, you could work for me, you could be my assistant." Right. Like, because the assumption is that, hey, we're going to go back to the old power structure. We're going to go back to the old dynamic. We're going to go back to this, to the, to the society. And I mean, like, you could sort of, uh, I don't know, you could sort of critique, uh, well, I mean, I, I think it would be like bad, bad, really unsporting to critique Abigail from this, but she, cause she kind of wants to get hers, right? Like she's like, Oh, Oh yeah. Like the problem with going back to the old society is that it's the old society and right. Like injustice still exists. No, like the problem with going back to, to the old society is I don't want to be an assistant anymore. Like I've, yeah. I've sort of proven that I'm, I'm actually better than you at a lot of things. I'm going to be your, I'm going to be your assistant. I think she seals her fate when she, when she makes that suggestion. Jordan, just for your knowledge, they find out that the whole time they've been shipwrecked, they've been on a resort island. They've just been on the other side of it. Um, <laughs> that is, again, extremely funny. Yeah, and so none of them bother walking over to the other side of the island until the girlfriend finally does it, and Abigail follows her. And the movie ends with it with Abigail sneaking up behind her with a rock, right? Who She's either going to murder her by hitting her in the head with it, or she's going to put it down. And then there's like an ambiguous shot of the man running through the woods. It's very European. Um, the other moment. I mean, you can, say yeah. you say you say very European. I think that's worth unpacking a little bit. I would I would say that sort of two things make this more European than the menu and then than the White Lotus. One is its um, uh, pace. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is is a kind of toleration of ambiguity. Uh, rather, mm-hmm. Right. Rather than than kind of having to kind of like underline, highlight and like italicize every single point uh, that it's trying to make rather rather than having a story with with beats, you know, uh, with, in the in the way of kind of like uh, traditional Hollywood 
script, it it has you know these sort of scenes, and they follow. Uh, they follow one on on another, but the the like. I, I mean, that is to say, there's a plot to the movie that that moves forward, and yet it's really willing to to kind of take its time and not not uh, insist um, that it means what it uh, it means what it what it says it means. I mean, is there are there other uh, other than the fact that everyone has a European accent of some kind or another? Are there way, other ways you feel like it's European? No, I think you you hit the nail on the head. The the sort of striving of the androgynous man through the woods felt a little bit European, but I think also because you don't know why he's doing it is the big one. You don't know if he's running toward her or away from her or he's running to the other side of the island or like, you don't know why he's doing it. You don't totally know why he's sort of streaked with like, he has like some cuts on his face or something like that at that, that moment. Like what did he like just hit some thorns or something and, you know, run through them or like, yeah, exactly. What was the, uh, what was the thing? But what is the? But it it is like it's funny for for a moment for a movie where he starts kind of really in stasis, you know, um, sitting at the table or no, actually, really, because the the first part of the movie it's three acts and and a, what's a a, a pre coda called? Is there a, a thing in music? I I don't know. In in like. Um, <laughs> In, they're they're called sl- slow introductions. Okay. The, the or, or sectional verses if you're talking about Bing Crosby. Sectional verses. Okay, that's interesting. I've heard the German term Forstrophe used for the like the little uh the little um intro parts of songs. Uh, like in a Cole Porter song, there were oh, there will often be a part, you know, before the the melody you know starts. It's like the mm-hmm. intro and it has this sort of Forstrophe of like um uh, of the reality show of the models of like an audition for uh, for men who are models who are, uh, you know, I don't know, going to do like a fashion model kind of kind of thing. And he started the, the main thing that you do. They look at your, you know, book with your your samples, your I don't know, probably photographs like I don't know what they're called. I'm sure they're like terms of art for all of these things. And then they tell you to walk. You know, and they have him walk back and forth toward the toward the auditioner's table and and away from the auditioner's table. And uh, then they say uh, they say, do it again, but do it with a song in your head. And he's like, so, you know, like what? Rhythmically. Right. So there's this like very there's this very kind of artificial like simulacrum of a real movement that you'd make in your life. And it ends with this, uh, with this really urgent movement, either, you know, out of terror or out of hope or out of sadness or out of anger or something. Um, he's, uh, he's, you know, really, really running fast, interesting, you know, interesting bookends. Um, you know, thematic, thematic unity, also very European. I think what uh, distinguishes it from an American movie is that in the American movie, you would have had the Sarah Jessica Parker voiceover being like, in a way, aren't we all running through a forest? In a way, I realized what I needed to do was what that modeling, what that model scout, that that whatever creative director told me to do. And anyway, relax the triangle of sadness. It was between my eyes all along. Which is what you do with Botox, of course. Um, <laughs> and, and, and boat, boat, ox. boat ox. and who, oh. who is the boat ox, you know, the, the workers. The... <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of intersectional class analysis, I think the, the really, cause I feel like this is a movie that sets up a lot of dynamics where you expect it to tell a very pat sort of story and then it flips the script on you. Um, usually by having something bad happen. Right. Um, but there's one particular character where I felt like we only see her a couple times and her experience of the world just felt very clear, complicated, painful, difficult. But there was a clarity to it that kind of rang like a bell in the way that a lot of the other movie, rest of the movie was kind of muddy or misdirected, not like by accident, like on purpose. Um, and that was the woman, the aphasia, the, the aphasic woman, the woman who had a stroke and couldn't talk. Right. It's, it's such a wonderful, weird little part of this movie. Um, I mean, did you have strong feelings about that character, Matt? I did. Well, I did. Like, I, I sort of wondered. I, she was always like in my mind is like, what is she kind of what is she doing here in a movie that's that's really clearly a, about its kind of social comment? Like what? What is uh what is she doing here? But I like uh I thought her 
her uh the one thing that she kept the one phrase she kept repeating like it's up in the clouds up in the clouds up in the clouds was a very intri- in in german um like was a really kind of suggestive and and ambiguous uh you know kind of refrain to have well well chosen right because yeah. that that was actually written you know so someone had to come up with it so it was a uh you know i i think a good choice for that but i yeah i mean i i sort of I sort of liked I I sort of liked her and I liked how there was an interesting um there was an interesting element of her interactions with everybody where everybody really let her down in some way yeah. right like because she, or, or like everyone was not capable like of of dealing with her set her disability right uh which you know is the the aphasia but also like she was she moved in a wheelchair uh because of her stroke and so her she couldn't walk on her legs and so had had to be kind of like uh taken carried dragged you know everywhere which is um which was like a part of what uh, kind of moving her around the island was part of the kind of the early choreography of like getting to the uh getting to the island but that's uh you know it was kind of clear in how in in how like badly suited the world was to or everyone was or how how everyone was unwilling i suppose to sort of deal with uh deal with what her needs were what else about her uh struck you so there's that I, I, exactly 100% like nobody was willing to connect with her there were scenes we watched which were only for the purpose of people not being able to talk to her to show how callous they were. And there was a sense that a person talking to her showed you who that person was. Like there was, there was a mask on them when they tried to talk to her. And when they found out that she couldn't talk back, then you saw who they really were. And that gets flipped, you know, that gets turned in, in a sort of very fierce way. Um, although, I, as I said, it was clear. I mean, it's not like confusing in the last scene with her, which is sort of the spiritual end of the movie also, where we also realize that they must be on a resort island because she gets approached by a vendor. Right. Like there's a black man on the beach who comes up to her and she's sitting in a life raft. She can't move. She can't talk. They've just left her there. Right. They check on her periodically. Um and uh, and the black man approaches her and I think sees that she's white and sees that she's relatively nicely dressed and attempts to sell her a bunch of fancy watches or hats. Right. Knockoffs. Knockoffs. He's carrying tons of knockoff luxury merchandise, including like a large stack of hats on his head. And he has sort of a yoke that he's carrying. Right. That's carrying like watches and jewelry and stuff. And it's been a theme throughout that like watches and jewelry are like available for purchase for these people whenever they want them. And she can't talk to him, right? She can't explain to him why why she's there or like what's going on. And she certainly can't buy a watch, but she also can't tell him that like we're stranded here and oh my God, like you're a person, please get help. Right. And, and the way that she responds is to like reach for him and it freaks him out. And he like pulls away because he doesn't speak a language that she understands anyway. Right. Like or that we understand. I don't under, I don't know what language he is speaking by default. Right. He has a little bit of English sprinkled in there, but he has another language that he's speaking to himself. And there's a moment when he withdraws from her and he's sort of in the in the cove underneath the sort of rock formations. And it just it felt to me like all of the accoutrement he was carrying came to resemble his sort of a sort of a pre-colonial accoutrement, right? Like, like his big hats became like a native hat and his like big thing for carrying things became a sort of native way of carrying things. What it felt to me was that the existence of this place as, as, as is popularly understood is predicated on this economic relationship between the rich people coming here to buy things and the sort of manufactured goods that flow through here and stuff. Um, but it's, it's a facade and this guy's authentic experience is much more closer to what it was before these white people ever showed up. And, and when she can't participate in that economy anymore, it all collapses It sort of gets washed away. Um, and she's just her, you know, alone to die. But like more than that, it's like 
oh, the island is the island. Of course, that thing gets flipped because we find out it's actually a resort. Um, but there's something about how when you can't talk about it and you can't name it, what is it? You know, and it's a little bit forest primeval. Like it's a little bit like, you know, feels a little bit, you know, uh, problematic in that respect. But uh, I found it kind of powerful. Um, and I feel like that also resonates a little bit with my my experience again of kind of like working working in an industry that sort of is about paying court to rich people, trying to to raise money from them for charitable organizations. That like the kind of job that I had, you know, I was, I was a very tiny cog in a much bigger machine, but sort of like we we really need the rich people to be rich. Right. I'm not saying that's the only way that you could possibly fund classical music. There are other countries that do it differently. You always have the option of not funding it at all. But the particular like basic loop that we were in is we needed rich people to give us money. And that's something that you can only do if you are really, really rich. So we would kind of like line up around them and in all of these flattering ways say like, oh, man, it would be super great if you could just like be a rich person for me. Right now you know couldn't couldn't you just be rich that would be great that would be the best for all of us here don't you see that can't you just be really really rich um and that isn't necessarily good for us right there there are psychological things that are messed up about it uh it kind of places us into a situation where we are you know parasitic or at the best in some kind of mutualistic relationship with them where we rise and fall with them and can't live without them and that kind of stuff so like it, it's not necessarily good for us but the other side of it is like it's not really good for them and on a level we know that right like they they probably have other things they could be doing with this money we're trying to coax it out of them so that we can have their money and there's something something about that in this situation where like the guy comes up and is like, oh man, like you're a rich person. It sure would be great if you could do the rich person thing of buying one of my many hats, right? And she can't tell him I need water. And he can't hear that from her, right? All that he all that he can do is offer to get that particular relationship flowing with her as kind of the the lord and him as the the supplicant right and when she's not willing or able to engage in that then he has no other way of interacting with her right and it's it's pretty bad for her maybe uh he at least has the option of walking away but what could she do it's all, he's it's more than that it, he's he's even kind of alarmed by it you know what i mean like the idea that like Oh, she's going to express some sort of real need, uh, you know, both because of her uh, because of her situation, you know, because she can't uh, because she can't speak and has been kind of left by the the others in her party, um, you know, uh, and they only check in on her every now and again. But also because, uh, you know, they're, they're shipwrecked and need need help. Um, like the fact that it's it's worse than like he just can't. Uh, can't hear it, it it really kind of freaks him out a little bit at least the the way that his kind of horrified expression as she like grabs onto him needily is uh you know uh you know shows that reaction you probably experience it similarly if one of your donors just came up to you and just tried to grab you while babbling in a language you didn't understand um, yeah, yeah. Or if they if they like said, I'm having a really hard time, I need to talk to another human being right now. And I would have been like, like, you know, in this context, I'm not a human being to you. Don't you understand <laughs> that? Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about the menu for a little take, bit? Uh, take take that. Take the hat. Well, I you know, the thing I'll say about the the thing I'll say about the menu is I think it is less. It's it's more it's more a farce, you know, uh, the the um, the triangle of sadness is 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 really satirical, right? Like something it's been a, a, a something that Pete has said a lot that, you know, this this film is a uh, this film is a, a, a farce pretending to be a satire. Right. And the, the sort of um, the seriousness of the social comment or the the kind of the the depth of the analysis is part of it, uh, it, you know, is part of what, what makes it, you know, I guess a, a satire or kind of the, the urgency of, of a, a need for change. The thing about, the thing about, um, the menu is that the plot enacted in the movie, the menu is, um, 
is uh, sufficient, right? Like it, it sort of writes the scales uh, in a way that doesn't get at the, the uh, get at the sort of the larger social issue of why should, why should restaurants uh, like this not, why should restaurants like this exist at all? So the menu, the menu takes place on a, on a, an island, um, I, I think it's notionally in the Pacific Northwest on which there is one of these tasting menu restaurants, Michelin starred restaurants, uh, lorded over by refines and, and as the chef. And he has a, you know, an army of, um, fanatically devoted acolytes. Uh, yes, chef. Yes, chef. Uh, you know, um, kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the, the nightmare scenes in the bear, um, the, the vibe, the, you know, cult, cultish atmosphere surrounding, uh, surrounding the chef. And, uh, you know, you come to this restaurant on a, on a boat, uh, from, you know, from a city and then you like are there and you're stuck there. So the whole thing, um, you know, the whole thing is fantastically expensive. The only people who can afford it are terror, you know, are extremely rich people and the uh the um the conflation of really rich and terrible is something that happens in in this film the people who can afford this uh are all you know are all terrible people a a like philandering captain of industry uh who um and then uh, and 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 then it's his plan and and here comes the spoilers so you know skip ahead like uh 120 seconds if you don't want to hear hear what happens uh ray fine's plan is is that uh he's going to kill them all uh uh restaurant cooks and cooks and customers alike uh in a giant fire uh after dousing them all in chocolate sauce sprinkling graham cracker crumbs on the ground in an elegant thing and uh, pouring marshmallow fluff all over them. He's going to turn the entire restaurant into a giant s'more. Uh, a well, that's com- a much more American movie <laughs> due to the presence of marshmallow uh, fluff, if nothing a con- else. A conflagration. Um, yeah. Of s'mores. Oh, Matt, s'mores are your favorite. They're, they are absolutely my favorite. That's why uh, our, you know, our uh, colleague uh, Ryan Sheely texted me. It's like I know it's a little horror adjacent, Matt, but you must watch this movie and text me when you get to the end. <laughs> and I, I wrote back, "It's like a s'more," because as you know, uh, I collaborate with Ryan on a Tumblr uh, called "It's Like a S'more" at likeasmore.tumblr.com, uh, where we post pictures of things that are like a s'more. <laughs> Um, so the, the, uh, so that he's, you know, and so the, there are all these kind of menacing dishes. Each dish is a play on the trope of, of some kind of fine dry dining trope, uh, that, uh, you know, involves the kind of like the elaborate story or the kind of the, the abstruse sourcing of the ingredients or the kind of, um, fanatical attention to detail, uh, <laughs> in in the in the preparation and the like the extreme levels of technique honed honed over years and years of of monastic practice um each one then has kind of like a horrorish or thrillerish uh twist uh to it um and each you know and and you discover sort of horrible things uh horrible things about the the film and and the motivation behind this for for Ray Fines is that like these people, these these like uh, Wall Street finance bros who are you know stealing people's money, this um, philandering captain of industry, this uh, that that these people are are not really worth like the the people who make it possible to exercise this level of craft are actually really terrible people and don't deserve his food and you know the whole thing yeah a plague on all your houses the whole thing is rotten uh i'm you know i'm rotten for pandering to you i'm uh right this this whole thing you know uh john leguizamo is in this film which is uh, i didn't expect him but he's delightful uh, as a like as a comic actor uh, from from way back who like he says I'm getting into my hosting phase I'm going to get you know get, start uh start doing like a travel travel documentary made me think of the the new travel show starring Eugene Levy um 
uh, that's uh, on on Apple Plus. But uh, you know, I mean, the thing yeah, that and, is a and really it, really hang on. That is a really sharp and specific like observation that that's what happens to comic actors is they end up hosting travel documentaries. It's uh, well, it's it's a contemporary phenomenon, but there there are like half a dozen of them that you could name, right? But that but then you know he like at one point he's he like pleads with Ray Fiennes, why do I deserve to die? And he's like. I thought some of your movies were really just terrible and uh, an artist should, should do more with the gifts that they were given. <laughs> you know, and he, he does everything in this like sort of serial, serial killery, uh, serial killery way. Now I, there, there is a, you, you caught on pretty quickly that, that something is something bad is happening. Um, it, it becomes ominous very fast. I've, I've given away some details of what it is, though there are, there are some things that are still, I, that I don't want to talk about with, uh, with how, you know, especially the kind of the couple that we start with, uh, which is Nicholas Holt from UK Skins. And Anya Taylor Joy, who we refer to in our house as Chess Girl, um, talk, you know, uh, <laughs> like make it uh, uh, what their path is through the film and kind of their their relationships and 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 some things. I won't, I won't give away everything, but the the thing. So there's there's kind of a, a a sketch of it, and so the thing that the the thing that I think makes it a little less artistically serious is that the the underlying thing of sh- you know should we have these restaurants or like is this a good you know is is this good nourishment right like is this good food is kind of left um uh, left unaddressed it's it's gestured at by means of a cheeseburger which is one of the courses uh that uh but like um it's not, uh, you know, you you don't get the the feeling that like, oh, you know, all this all this luxury is sort of rotten to the core. You you get the feeling that like that that maybe the the film is on the side of man. It would be good if Ray Fiennes had customers who are really worthy of all of his all of his. Uh, you know, uh, fantastic art and craft and, and creativity. And wouldn't it be wonderful if, um, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if, I guess, if, if, if the, those people could afford to do it at the, at the same time, it, it leaves unasked kind of the, the bigger questions around like, what is the, uh, what is the sickness that, that leads to, to this sort of institution in the first place and the kind of the social organization that, that, springs up that develops that develops around it um the ecosystem one thing ray fine says at the beginning is tonight you will eat whole ecosystems which i guess means a salad uh but the you know the <laughs> but the uh you know like this this ecosystem you know m- might not be a good thing a good thing for for society and and triangle of sadness g- goes there i think you know in the kind of the uh ever so slightly lord of the flies aspect where abigail becomes you know just sort of recapitulates the the kind of the dominance and control model by hoarding the resources um you know, and uh, then you know, we think I I think kills to to defend her uh, to defend her position. So there is a a short disquisition on on the menu, but it is it is super fun, and like part of it is how it's uh, uh the the second unit I think was directed by uh, someone from the Netflix show Chef's Table. Um, like, and just the way, oh, awesome. the way it does that world is so perfect. And if you, you know, uh, I, I, it, it is, uh, I don't, I don't, uh, race fancy cars and motorcycles like Pete does. Um, you know, I'm not an aficionado of, of, uh, classical music like Jordan, but I do like a nice restaurant and, and let me tell you, man, they got the number they got, uh, they, they, they really nailed every single <laughs> fine di- contemporary up to the moment, fine dining trope that was wonderful including complaining about contemporary uh fine dining tropes like th- there's an editor of a food magazine there who says oh, is this snow snow is so overdone these days because one of the <laughs> one of the, the dishes is is cr- uh, dusted with crushed ice so uh you know anyway there's there's your little disquisition on the menu and you can decide whether you want to put it on your menu can i ask a question like do you do you want to eat the food? Because I feel like there's a version of that that you do where, like, 
part of the joke is that the food is all actually trash and it's like oh this is an extruded galette of cornmeal sponge filled with a creme it's like wait that's a twinkie you're describing a twinkie <laughs> uh, <laughs> or or is this or as you said it's kind of on the side of ray fines's art actually being good rather than just being kind of a symptom of some people having too much money do you do you leave this being like oh man which i could have licked that yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. The uh, no that and that's part of. I think that's part what part of what makes it work. You know what I mean? It's not the the joke is not the food is actually bad, right? The joke and one of the things that that I, I suppose complicates it that makes it a little more sophisticated is that the food is actually good. Now, in everything, there's kind of a twist. You know, there's there's kind there's a there's an amount of cruelty in either the like the conception or execution. Um, you know. Pun intended of a particular dish uh but the um there is a like uh, but but they are all at least uh, you know at their at their basis something where it's like hey this would be in a really fancy restaurant at this level um and and you know be it, it actually would be pretty good to eat yeah I, I watched enough of the menu to see them start to introduce the food and the way the food works in the menu versus in the triangle of sadness is oh, sure. extremely different. Right. Where like, cause triangle of sadness has the giant vomiting montage in the middle where they eat all this food, which is made to look beautiful, but also perverse. You know, well, like, it's a lot like, of, it's a lot of seafood. It's like an octopus tentacle and you get a lot of the, a lot of the kind of bodily detail of the animals that we eat that is very often sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, like refined out of the experience in fine dining. So it's like, it's made, it is fancy food. It's clearly, it's clearly fancy food. It's clearly expensive food, but it's also made to look kind of gross, right? Like yeah. the, the vibrating jelly of aspic, right? Like, uh, that with dill chopped up on it looks, ter- mm. looks terrible. It looks like vomit before it's vomited back up or the, um, the, uh, the octopus tentacle, right? Like looks like a, a, a sea monster or something like that that like or the the oyster right like people eating the oyster and like man you're vulnerable when you eat an oyster they're so tasty but like the the odd time in your life the like the one or two times in your life where you'll get a bad one might put you off the whole the whole uh the whole enterprise all all together but it's it's yeah, the but the the food in the menu is pornography. It's like um, it's it's like Chef's Table. It's like any of those uh, you know, fancy shows about about food. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this meal has come to an end, and our uh, if this boat's a rockin', don't come a knockin', because the the tidal wave of poop water is coming down the uh, is coming down the hallway. Uh, this has been an, an interesting interesting chat. Thank you, uh, guys, um, for uh, coming to discuss the menu because you know it's always on the menu. The rich. This has been Eat the Rich Cast 20, uh, 2023 um, and has been an interesting conversation. Thanks for listening to it. And uh, Pete and Jordan, thanks for uh, talking about these films. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture or the you know European art house culture <laughs> to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve it.